In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve, moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. Thanks for downloading Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. Hopefully you weren't incredibly bored or grossed out or offended by part one of series one, episode 43, Fishing Stories, as requested by Nick S. This is going to be part two. Got about five or six stories lined up for you. We'll see how that goes. This edition is brought to you by Corker's Footwear. They have my favorite boot, the Chrome which is a boot that has interchangeable soles, and it also has the BOA lacing system, so you don't have to worry about frozen or murky, muddy laces. You can switch out the soles from studded, if you're going to be fishing on ice or rocks, to sticky flat rubber if you need to go into a grocery store or into a gas station. If you walk into a gas station or grocery store on those linoleum floors with cleated shoes, you're going to wipe out. These boots are super lightweight. They dry quickly. And they are just awesome. So if you need a new pair of wading boots, please go to ProGuideDirect.com and mention my name or go through the link directly on my site to help monetize my company. And be sure to buy one size up is what most anglers recommend. I'm a 10 and a half shoe. I wear a size 11 corkers. All right. So Jason should be getting part one already online. Let's talk about some more stories. I can't remember what night it was, but it was definitely a party at Stone's house. Stone had some crazy roommates back in the day, 
and they had some legendary parties. It was snowing that morning, and we met at Tom's house. Tom didn't get a license until he was probably like 19 or 20 years old. So we met at Tom's house, and we picked up Bob Scoville there. Now, Bob is our friend from Boston. At some point, his job in the fly shop became just shipping boxes out. So you would see him in the back room shipping boxes, and that was about it. But Bob had a great sense of adventure, and and he was old. We were I was like 21, and he was 29. He had all this aged wisdom to him. And he had this really cool, awesome, artsy girlfriend, and they lived in McLean, Virginia. And for some reason, we decided to go fly fishing Mossy Creek. And I will be doing a podcast just on Mossy Creek in the future. A client of mine, Gene, had a whole bunch of questions and and wanted some suggestions on how to fish it his first time. And I was like, you know what? I've been emailing all this stuff, but I might as well just put it out there for everybody based on on my experiences uh, on what I would do if I fished there. So we'll do that at another point. So we get there, and I'm driving back then my 93 Honda Accord two-door, and Bob is hungover. He's not wearing a seatbelt. He is lying down on the back, and he's just in the fetal position. And we're on 81, and it's snowing, and there's snow being kicked up and mud and grit from all the trucks in 81. I don't remember why, but I needed new wiper blades. I mean, I know why I needed them because they're all warped and they weren't working. But for some reason, you know, I was making six fifty an hour at Orvis. And after like three years there, they didn't give me a raise. I was still using my cheap ones. So you couldn't see out the windows. There was, and we had the defroggers, go, def, ugh, the defoggers going on and nothing. There was like a three inch square patch you could see out. And we stopped at Hardy's somewhere near Harrisburg. So Tom could uh, drop the kids off at the pool and Bob could get a greasy breakfast and I could get a, like a cold Coke and we get there and this is still in the days of felt sold boots. I will never endorse felt sold boots ever. I think they're dangerous. It has nothing to do with uh, transporting microorganisms between streams. I never found that they had any sort of traction or gained traction. Even if you added studs or spikes to them, I always felt they were slippery on whatever surface you're fishing on, be it rocks of slime, grit, gravel. Uh, I once got stuck on a riverbank at Dickerson Power Plant because it had snowed about one eighteenth of an inch the night before, and there was a little bit of mud where it melted. And it was about a slope of the minimalist grade you can imagine, but I couldn't get up it because my felsole boots had no traction. I couldn't get up this hill. I think I ended up climbing up on my stomach filling my waders up with mud. I threw mine out as soon as uh, I found out that I could get sticky rubber and sticky rubber with studs. And if you're going to get those, get yourself some caulkers. So let's bring you back to Mossy Creek. And there's like two feet of snow on the ground. This was the winter of, I was temping at the Center for Environment Education or something which had nothing to do with the environment or management or education. It was an ISO 2001 training company. It sucked. I didn't make anything there either. I quit one day. That was that was a great day for me. I remember a lot of snow that winter, and I remember having a Honda, so it must have been that winter of 2000. I just come back from the Keys. And we get out there and we start walking the banks and immediately that snow starts caking on to our 
heels and feet. And we're walking around like Superfly or whatever his name was. From, I'm going to get you, sucker, with those giant like platform heels with the fish tanks in them. We're walking around with like giant heels and we're tripping. Now, the funniest part was the muskrat holes along the bank were covered in snow. So somebody would just be walking along and all of a sudden their leg would go in a muskrat hole and they'd fall up to their crotch and be shrieking profanities. And we'd just be laughing hysterically because the person just walking along and out of nowhere, they're in the ground. It was funny. And we're throwing streamers and, and I think the fishing sucked that day. It was bitterly cold, like 25 degrees. You know, your lines freezing, your guides are freezing, your fly is freezing in midair your boots are frozen solid. You can't feel your fingertips. And the most memorable thing is this mallard, male mallard with three females, was the biggest freaking mallard I'd ever seen. It was like four times the size of a normal mallard, like the size of like a black lab. It was huge. It was like somebody took like the opposite of a shrinking gun because you see shrinking guns in like movies or something and they shot it and it like expanded four times its size. Like you, like you photoshopped it and you stretched like the corners out and made it big. The thing was freaking huge and it followed us and it's females followed us. We fished upstream. That damn duck would go upstream with us. We fished downstream. That damn duck went downstream with us. It got to the point where we started throwing snowballs at the duck. And we're hitting that damn mallard in the head, in the back, and he's just looking at us. And for spite, he kept following us the entire freaking day. And it was like a mutant duck. He had an attitude. He had a grudge against us. He did not want us to catch a single damn fish that entire day. And we fished until we gave up because our feet were frozen and our boots were frozen and this damn duck had scared all them damn brown trout away. And Tom and I will still get together and have a beer and reminisce 10 years later about how big that duck was. And I've been back there dozens of times, and that duck is gone. It was a one-day experience. That monster duck showed up and scared off our fish. And the drive back sucked because I still didn't get new wiper blades, and I couldn't see out the window. We had a client named Adam who used to come into the fly shop. Adam was one of the dot-com kids. He was making a ton of money out of college, and he would hire Tom and myself to take him fishing. So that was around the first time I had ever guided professionally. It was 99-2000, and Adam was one of the regular clients. I still remember I got the worst sunburn with him. I took him shad fishing in the Rappahannock. I was wearing a V-neck fishing shirt, and I didn't have sunscreen on the V. For like two years... I still had a tan mark from that thing. It like permanently discolored me. It was like reverse vitiligo, but in like a V shape. It was bizarre. And he called Tom one day and said, hey, there's a Marlin tournament going on in the Outer Banks. You want to go? There's room for two on the boat. So Tom called me and he said, hey, let's go fish this Marlin tournament with Adam. Adam's like, here's the hotel. Meet us down there. It was the same weekend that my girlfriend from Manhattan was visiting, and she picked me up at a bar in the summer of 99, and the bar was called the Dakota, named, it was like the ho- named after the hotel where Lennon was shot. And I had a girlfriend at the time, so I, I was faithful to my girlfriend, but we, we kind of kept in touch. And then we started dating, and this girl had worse ADD than me. She would refuse to, to email 
And this was the summer of 2000. I was living out of a house in Centerville, and I used to get these crazy packages from her with just like cut up photos from magazines and, and weird stories. And she had never really left the city. She went to school in Boston, lived in Manhattan, and um, I would go up to see her. She'd come down. This was the time she came down to visit. And she came down on like a Thursday, had dinner at my parents' house. Everything was great. And then like Saturday morning, the relationship started going downhill. She was just annoying me on the drive in my Honda down to Charlottesville to my brother's place to go tubing on the James. And of course, I'm not going anywhere without a fly rod. So I brought my five weight, which just exploded this past Wednesday night. I was casting it out with a guy at Roach's Run and exploded. Graphite went everywhere. So we're drifting down the river and... And we're with a music company and half the people are stoned or half of them are on acid, but everyone's drinking beer. And after her third beer tubing, she's like, where do I go to the bathroom? And I'm like, just pee. You're, you're in the water. That's what we all do. And I'm fishing. I'm throwing like damsel nymphs and poppers and catching some bluegills and sunfish and smallies. And she's like, oh no, I'm not urinating in a river. So I think at one point she may have gone up on land to pee, but it made the relationship go the next day um, we try to reconcile we went to like the natural history museum in dc and then she's like take me to the airport like her flight was like eight hours it was an evening and i just dropped her off at the airport went home got my gear drove to tom's house tom and this girl had baked me cookies so i had a bag of cookies with me she baked Tom's mom gave us a carton of Marlboro 100s for the drive down. And this is Tom's two-door frontier pickup truck. And we're driving down there and we're having some cigarettes and, and we're hungry. So we opened up this bag of cookies and we had like one bite. These things tasted like they were made with stale marbles, like wheat that had been pissed on by a donkey and like cigarette ashes. They were disgusting. We took one bite and threw them all out the window and just like took the bag and just dumped it out the window and threw the bag in the back of the truck. I, I mean, there's bad cookies and then there's like these. These were worse than like what a kid would make you with Play-Doh and then like put icing on it and you would eat. They were disgusting. We get down there and we left in the afternoon. It's like a six or seven hour drive. And fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. We notice there's a sign. The samples are playing. One of my all-time favorite bands is playing at the bar next door. But we can't go there because we got to get up at the butt crack. And as we're driving down there, you know, the rain starts and the wind. And we get to the hotel room. Everyone's drinking. There's nine dudes in a one-bed room, one-bed motel room down at uh, the end of the Outer Banks. And it's disgusting. I mean, just smelly body odor, farts, belching. I mean, just frat house nasty and everyone's snoring we get up and we get to the docks at dark and and it is pouring and it's windy and the boats are being tossed around back and forth and by like 5 a.m the captain's like you know what screw it 
we're not going out in the tournament. The tournament's going to get canceled. So by 6 a.m., we're like, screw this. So we go find breakfast somewhere at a diner. And we get a nice big greasy breakfast to get rid of the hangover. And we go fishing with Adam. I think everyone else just took off home. But the three of us are like, dude, we're in the Outer Banks. We got fly rods. So we went down to the Oregon Inlet under the jetties. And we're fishing. And we're hooking sea trout or weak fish left and right. We're throwing clousers. And Orvis used to make this rattling bend back fly with eyes. And we are tearing it up. And at some point, uh, Tom slips on the wet jetty and falls just buses back or something and there's that corner where the sand meets the jetty and there's a swirl of water and i chuck a clouser in there and i get the biggest striper of my life it like a 26 incher of course it looks smaller in the photographs but that's what it was it was awesome and the storm is just getting nasty and i was working probably at the temp agency then at that dot com that i mentioned previously because i scanned the photographs and i remember they had a scanner there that's what i did on my time and you just see these nasty skies. Apparently, there was a rain spout, water spout out on the ocean that day and waves that the captain said would have just destroyed the boats. So it ended up being you know, a good adventure. On the way back, Tom and I saw these cornfields and decided we were going to get corn. And um, it turns out, you know, you're not supposed to pick like farmer's corn on the side of the road, mostly because it's illegal, but B, because it's made for cattle. And we cooked it, I think, when we got home and it was inedible. And that's the story of how we never fished a marlin tournament in the Outer Banks. This next story doesn't really involve fly fishing, but it's the introduction to the creepy story that happened last weekend. Back in college in Fredericksburg, Virginia, we went to Mary Washington College. We lived on a small creek in the apartments known as Greenbrier. And in that creek, you had everything from fall fish and pike to eels, bluegill, largemouth bass, and whatever else would kind of swim up river. I guess further down, you could have stripers and shad and herring. My roommate and I used to go out all the time and spin fish. This is before I converted over fully to fly. I guess I should probably tell that story while I'm at it. And one day we're fishing under Route 3 under the overpass. And we see a plastic bag with this pink fatty flesh sticking out and we're freaking out that for some reason we think that somebody had thrown a baby down there it was about the same size as a baby and the same color and we're sitting there arguing under the overpass you go pick it up no you go pick it up no dude you go pick it up so finally, I sacked up and went over there. It turned out it was like a butterball turkey out of its shrink wrapping and inside a Safeway bag that had been decomposing on the shore of the water for who knows how long. So we were quite happy it wasn't something as scary as we thought it would be. Well, last weekend, I was out with my clients. I'm teaching the wife how to cast while the father and six-year-old daughter are fishing downstream from us it's a local stocked tailwater in northern virginia and it's a really cold morning so i give the daughter she's six my north face down vest and after a while she comes up to me and tells me that i need to keep my pockets cleaner in my clothing because there was there was litter in there so i thought that was pretty hilarious and as we're walking up stream i see this white bundle of fabric tied up on a rock with flowers sticking out of it 
And the first thing that comes to my mind is, what's what's going to be in there? This is freaking me out back to uh, the spring of like 98 when we're fishing down in Fredericksburg. Is this like somebody's baby that had died? And when we were on our honeymoon in Kauai, a woman had gone into the rainforest and given birth and the, killed the baby or the baby died and she kind of buried it up there. So there was all these people searching the mountains and there were helicopters flying all over. So I'm like, well, I guess people really do then like leave babies out in the woods or something. So we're getting closer and closer. And now I started seeing there's blood all over this white sheet that's wrapped up like a pastry or something tied on top flowers sticking out. So I get close enough and I kind of poke into it and thankfully it wasn't what I thought it was going to be, but it was quite as creepy as you can imagine. There were about four headless decapitated chickens, a guinea hen, cash money, coins, chocolate cake, sweet potatoes, yams, flowers, and I can't remember what and I don't really want want to remember and it was creepy and luckily you know that family wasn't freaked out about it and I kind of just bundled it back up and went fishing and I finished up with them in the parking lot and called the cops and had them come down to check it out because it's not too often in northern Virginia that you're going to find decapitated chickens wrapped up in some kind of ceremony so it turns out it was some kind of Santeria a West African religion where they made the sacrifices and um, we, we pulled it out. It probably weighed about 50 pounds and it was on top of a rock. It like, wasn't wet from the stream. She thinks it was done the night before because nothing had written like the raccoons and, and uh, vultures hasn't gotten to it yet. You know, the rats either. And uh, I was so creeped out. Normally if I'm going to find cash, I'm going to keep it. But when you find cash, that's with like some creepy sacrifice. You want to leave it alone. So I did that, and we put it in a giant 50-gallon trash bag because I keep those in my trunk to clean up after all the litter bugs out and about. And she hauled it off, and we started talking. It turns out her dad is a, uh, I guess, guide on Oswego in New York for salmon. So it was was an interesting little uh, story combination that, you know, I just come back from New York up where she was from, and... Uh, she was pretty pleased to get rid of it and was going to go tell all the people back at the station how creepy this find was. It was definitely creepy. She said some like African priestess put a curse on her last year saying, we're getting buzzed right now. Hold on a second. All right. That was the medevac going. There's a hospital down the street. She said an African priestess put a, like a curse on her that she would die in a fiery crash within a year. And it had been a year, so she hadn't died yet. She's like... I'm a little too familiar with these African religious stuff around here. So that's the most recent story I wanted to tell you. How about the story about Tom and I going up to the Little Juniata on Christmas Eve? And since it's been a couple of days since I recorded the last podcast before the Salmon River trip, hopefully I didn't already tell this one. Tom and I were going to go steelhead fishing in New York in the December Christmas time of 2000. And somehow at the last minute, we decided we weren't going to do that. And we called our friend Dave, who worked at the Orvis endorsed fly shop up on Spruce Creek in Pennsylvania. Back then, our Orvis shop had a very good relationship with 
a lot of lodges, outfitters, and guides around the mid-Atlantic area. And in order for us to endorse them at our shop, they would invite us up to go fishing. So we sort of had an open invite with Dave that we could just call. And if there are no clients scheduled, we could just go fish the private water that people pay thousands of dollars a year to fish. This is a place where they'll stock 16-inch trout. And as soon as the trout are released from the truck, a 30-inch brown comes out and eats it. So there are some big fish up there. As we started driving up, we're probably around Hagerstown, Maryland, when we start noticing snow on the ground. So we're like, all right, we're going to be fishing in the snow. We love fishing in the snow. And then somewhere around Chambersburg, Tom's like, dude, I forgot my waders. Like, oh my God, dude, how can you? It's Christmas Eve. You don't have waders. No fly shop is going to be open. We get up to Spruce Creek and we get to the fly shop. And luckily, Dave is still there. So Tom buys a pair of Orvis waders, Clearwater's $129 back in the day, and tells us, "Go, guys, go fishing, knock yourselves out. He also gave us permission to camp at the little pavilion at the end of the fishing stretch where there is a huge um, wooden fireplace. So we fish. We get down there and we park and... I'm walking up and, you know, it's winter up there, so it's spaghetti meatballs. It's, uh, you know, eggs and, and San Juans. I'm about 30 feet from the stream, and I just take my six weight, which is my favorite rod probably of all time, my nine-foot six weight Orvis Trident rod. I love that thing with the green finish, and it was a great rod. And I just cast from 30 feet out, and I drift about two feet and hook into about an 18-inch rainbow, 16 to 18 inches. I mean, who's going to notice when it's freezing cold out and you're catching these fish that have these guts that are just, their fish are so fat, like their bellies are hanging out of your your palms. It was so cold, you know, we, we get a quick picture and throw them back. And Tom and I fished throughout the afternoon, and it was consistent. We started... This is back when I fished with like little spools of tippet, like four, five, three X. Now I fish with straight monofilament and I was breaking a lot of fish off on the lighter line. I should have known better. And we go to set up camp probably late afternoon as the sun starts going down. And the guy who lives at the farm there drives down. He's like, guys, you can't camp here. This is private property. We said, well, Dave up at the shop gave us permission. And the landowner says, Dave runs the water. He doesn't run the land, so you guys need to leave. I said, all right, well, we'll go somewhere. So we were going to camp there. We'd already set up our tents, and we're going to get a fire going, make some food on our camp stoves. And now we had to go find a restaurant somewhere. And being Christmas Eve, the Spruce Creek was shut down. We just kept driving. This is before GPS, and I think all we had were Topo Maps. We found a pizza restaurant in this small town in the middle of nowhere, and decided we were going to eat there. And I think we were wearing our waders. People must have thought we were from Mars when we walked in in this really rural town in Pennsylvania. We eat. We start driving back at about 9 p.m. It starts snowing. There's already about a foot of snow along the river. And we drive and drive. We're trying to find just a place to pull over and camp. But eventually, we just find a quarry. And we pull into this quarry, and we are going to camp amongst the tailings of all the rocks. So we pull in, we figure no one's going to see us back here. We can camp. We'll be fine. So we get in our sleeping bags in the front seat of the pickup truck and we're wearing 30 degree bags or 32. 
and it drops down so cold overnight. We woke up, we turn on the radio for, you know, good morning, Christmas day. It was four degrees out. And I remember barely sleeping that night. It was so cold in the car. I only had my nose sticking out of my sleeping bag. I've got a zero degree bag now. I could use it then. And it turns out that, you know, it had been sort of warm the past couple of days. So all the snow on top of those rock pilings had melted and it pulled up where our car had been. And all of that had frozen overnight. So we were basically camped on and frozen to a small pond. So it probably took us an hour or two to get out using uh, shovels. And I think Tom had some kitty litter. And we used, of course, the gravel tailings and the floor mats from the car. And we had, you know, if you listen to my previous podcast about cellular respiration, you know that you exhale, it's water vapor. That water vapor had frozen to the inside glass. And it never defrosted. Even when we got home that night back to Northern Virginia, that ice was still on the inside of the cars despite having blasting the heat all day. We went back down and we fished. It was so cold that morning. Uh, Tom's lips split, my fingertips split. We got the stove going and we made instant mashed potatoes. They froze before we could actually eat them. All of the beer and Gatorade was frozen, so we had nothing to drink. I went to crank in my line and the handle on my bat and kill large arbor cracked off. It was so cold. And there's pictures of me where my fingers are taped up and that was the last time I ever wore probably no one of the last times I ever wore felt soles in the winter. I guess the time we went to Mossy Creek with Bob Scoville is probably the last time. So we were, every time you step in the water, you know, you get these like three inches of ice heels and you start looking like that dude from, I'm going to get you sucker again with these like four inch crystal clear heels. And it was dangerous. We were catching fish, but at what point do you want to stay out there when your flesh starts to split open because the air is so cold? So at some point we called it and we were going to drive back and fish the spring creeks around Carlisle. So we got to the ditch and Tom caught a brown trout that was spooging out. I guess females don't spooge out. It was releasing eggs. So I've got photographs of what a brown trout egg looks like. A little micro orange. So I know exactly now what to tie. And I think we caught maybe one brook trout and then bailed and went home. I'm pretty sure... That may have been the trip we stopped at Cabela's on the way back, but I can't remember. But it was Christmas Eve, and we had the river to ourselves. And I'd probably say the smallest fish we called it in Little Juniata, probably 16 inches. We lost a ton, and it was just nymphing eggs and worms and you know stoneflies. And, and that's one of the stories that Tom and I always go back to when we're sitting around having beers, having all that private water to ourselves. It's pretty awesome. We'll be talking about that you know, until we're old men. I've already got the gray hair. Tom shaves his head, so who knows about him. While I'm on the topic of cold weather, back when I was a high school substitute teacher, this was after I got laid off from the uh, government as a contractor. So I was a substitute. This must have been 2004 or maybe 2005. I'm going to say 2005 was when I went from being a long-term sub to a part-term sub so I could leave early to go work in Colorado. And somehow Tom had been talking with Joe up in New York, and Joe invited us up for a steelhead trip in March. We're like, all right, let's do it. So I'm showing the kids, and this is back when I was teaching fashion class as a sub. 
Now, what dude in the right mind teaches fashion class is the guy that gets stuck with the job. And I'd go in there every day and they're like, oh, Mr. Snow White, you're not wearing any pink. I'm like, that's usually how it goes. And they would like sprinkle glitter on me. And it was just awful. It was so bad. And we were showing a movie, so I knew I was going to sit there and tie flies in the back. So I tied a bunch of just egg-sucking leeches, eggs, and stone flies. We get up there. It's probably the first week of March because that's when my wife's birthday is. And my brother-in-law came to town to celebrate the twin, their twins, their birthday. So Tom and I are up there, and Joe's client is from Puerto Rico but lives in Canada or vice versa, and we're doing six-weight rods with four-weight line to have less drag in the water. I can't remember. It may have just been running line on some, and we're using pencil lead to sink down. Completely different type of fishing that I've ever encountered, where it's just the minimal amount of line going through the water and slowly bouncing your fly on the bottom. We bump into a guy upstream who's like, man, I call this six-pound brown trout yesterday i gutted him he was full of helgermites and we're like dude you killed a six pound brown like oh and the fishing was pretty pretty damn slow we hooked a couple steelhead and joe's client hooked a brown and then you know the, we went up to this is the first time i ever went to the altmar hotel and we ordered a hot lunch because it was just freaking freezing out it was probably 30s mid 30s and we get a hot lunch, and everyone's smoking. It was the first year, I think, that you were not allowed to smoke in New York bars, but no one really cared. And that's when we ordered the side of fries, which was just like 16 potatoes in fried form on a platter. And there's pictures of Tom. I think we got garlic on top. We got like the garlic fries because, you know, guys staying in the cabin, what do they want to do most is just outstink the next dude sleeping in the same room with them. And I don't remember the fishing. The fishing is not the whole point of the story. It's what happened the next day. Joe had to go back to Albany. His client left. And Joe's like, sorry, guys. um, I can't take you out in the drift boat. And I got to head back. So you can't stay at the cabin. We're like, dude, no worries. We brought our our camping gear just in case. It's March. Well, you know, whatever. It's springtime almost. So we drive out to our usual campsite, which was blocked off because that road is only paved half the year. Or plowed. So we camped at a campsite, what we dubbed Alpha. And that is in a big field out in the middle of nowhere. And we pull in there, and part of it had been paved because there's a little like engineering building there for some electronics and wiring. And Jason, you know this spot. It was on the right-hand side going into Camp Chrome. So there, it's paved, and there's like three and a half feet of snow drifts on the side where they've paved. And Tom gets all this stuff out. You think he was getting ready to camp halfway up Everest? I, he takes out like his mountaineering backpack. This is when Tom was full time like a manager at Hudson Trail Outfitters, which is a competitor to REI, but it's like local and family owned. So he's got like ice axes and hatchets and hammers and these pegs and his. Tent's got this crazy tarp and reflectors so you can see when you're coming off the mountain. I put on my snowshoes and I go over and I just stomp down like an eight foot square area and put up my tent. And I'm like, dude, it's too cold to touch tent spikes. So I'm just going to use some saplings from a pine tree, like the branches. 
10, 15 minutes, my campsite's up and good. I'm like, you know what? I got to go number two. And I'm like, the snow's too deep. So I went and I got to find this picture somewhere. I made a toilet out of the snow drift where I carved a square out of it and then dug a hole into it. And I made a nice little seat. You'd be surprised how painful it is to sit down on frozen snow with the hole underneath you to go to the bathroom. And I did this out in the open. I'm like, what do I care? Tom's seen it all. And so he took a picture of me, which wasn't funny while I was making big duty. And then um, I think we sat around all night and just drank out of a fifth of vodka all night and just, just chilled and hung out. And then it started to sprinkle a little bit. So we're like, all right, let's go in our tents. And, you know, I'd been playing around for like an hour while Tom was still setting up his tent. And I was walking around with my snowshoes and, and just having fun, playing around, throwing snowballs, writing my name in the snow. And then we heat up some dinner and we go to bed. And overnight, it dropped from about 33, 34 degrees to about four below. A storm had come in off of Lake Ontario and everything that had been rained on froze solid. So I'm lucky I had put my contact lens case in my sleeping bag with me because everything else froze solid. The boots... Our wading boots were, were as hard as, as cement. They were like an anvil. You couldn't move them. You couldn't put them on. So we're walking around campsite just in our neoprene booties. And we started the car and put the heat on high and put our boots under the front seats to, to defrost them. I just broke off the sapling stems, rolled up my sleeping bag, put it away, took five or six minutes, half the time to set up. But Tom had put all those metal spikes in the ground, which overnight had froze solid. So I'm sitting there in the car, heating up, drinking some Trader Joe's hot chai latte, listening to the radio and how the winds are going to be like, make it minus 30 with the wind chill. But school wasn't canceled. And it probably took Tom a good hour, hour and a half to break down his campsite. He had to use like ice axes and like pulley and lever systems to get. I was like, dude, just cut the metal, just pop your tent off the spikes and leave them. And we went back down to the river and we probably fished for another hour or two. And it was so bitterly cold, we're like, screw it. it. When it's, again, it's so cold and it's painful. And I'm wearing my giant Moonstone down jacket, like four layers. I'm dressed like Michelin Man. And it, it was the fingertips. At that point, there weren't really any like glomets, gloves that fold over. Just fingertipless gloves. There's a picture of me where I put my rod reel seat on my tongue in a froze solid. That, you know, I think that was a trip when we went to Cabela's on the way back and Tom honked at some girls from New York that had waved to us and they gave us their number. And for years I had, it just said NY girls on my cell phone. So Tom and I would drunk dial them all the time. That was a good trip. Another one of those stories that you'll be like, hey man, remember the time we carved the toilet out of snow and man, we, we went to bed and it was four degrees below zero when we woke up. Man, that was stupid. Now for a story more of what Nick was looking for. It was the year of the World Cup when Brazil lost to France. So that must have been 2002. It was the night that Ronaldo had some kind of like seizure before the match. And I just remember this because I was watching from a hotel in Youngstown, Ohio the morning after a wedding and it was a Russian wedding and most weddings they're going to put like a bottle of Chardonnay on your table 
not hit this wedding. This is a Russian wedding. They put down a bottle of vodka. So I was pretty hungover. And I also learned, I'll get to the fishing in a bit. I also learned that this hotel in Youngstown, Ohio, does not turn off their beer taps at night. So I would go from our hotel room with the ice bucket like every 20 minutes and just fill up the ice bucket with fosters from the tap. And then I'd go back and fill up everyone's beers. It was a fun wedding, very hungover. But uh, the bachelor party, it's my, it was my best friend, my wife's best friend, Natalia, who's from Russia, also as is my wife. Uh, her husband, Scotty, had a bachelor party. And those guys were coming from Columbus, Ohio, and they wanted to go river rafting on the New River in West Virginia. So they invited me up because I'm like halfway there. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. And I was going to pass Mossy Creek, which is the topic of the next podcast. And I'll probably retell the story on that one. And I had to get there by a certain amount of time to the bachelor party, or at least I thought so. So I gave myself 20 minutes exactly to fish Mossy, take out that six weight that I loved so much. I string it up. I put on this gaudy green hopper with rubber legs. One of my all time, just favorite nasty. It was basically a Katie did fly. And I walked up, and if you know the spot, it's just past the parking lot. It's just at when the trees open up. It's you step over that little spring, and it's that meandering spring creek through a pasture, and you've got the cut banks everywhere those fish can hide. And I've got that hopper on with like a nine foot two uh, x tippet leader. And I'd been fishing, you know, banging the banks is a term we use, banging the banks, walking up, casting. And I see this spot and there's like shade from a, like a black walnut tree and the cut bank of the grass overhanging. And there's a curve. So, you know, the water's been coming in at that angle with the velocity and it's carved out that bank. And I just step back from the bank and I make a cast and I drift that fly right through that lie. And you just see that brown trout come up, take a chomp of your fly, and turn his head back towards the bank. And it's that moment that you set the hook, and that fish pulls. And you know that you cast to where that fish was supposed to be. That fish came up, ate the fly you tied, and you land a beautiful brown trout. And I was like 18 minutes into my fishing, and I was like, you know what? I'm good to go. And I took a picture and I, you know, drew on it with like Adobe back in the day. Just a naked shot of that. I always take pictures of where I'll catch a fish in a scenario like this. You can see the hole. And then I drew on it like fly landed here, fish came up here. And it was one of those where everything came together, fly fishing scenarios that you wish you had a camera crew with you because it was just. You know, it, when my memory goes, when I lose that one, that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be a sad one for me. That's one of my all time favorite trout. So I forgot to mention that on the Salmon River trip, Trent had some betting thing about how many rods would get broken and how many people would fall in the river. 
And it was right after Trent, Dalton, and Khalil had gone home on Sunday morning that our friend Oliver came up with his buddy named Kyle. Oliver is Joe's web developer. RiverRunTroutFitters.com. And Kyle sneaks his way down the shoreline and takes a step in. He's like, all right, good. I'm, I'm solid. He takes one step, and I'm just standing there looking out on the river. The dude is gone. He, I mean, he's my height, like 5'11", 6 feet. The dude fell in a hole that he went completely under. Hat and everything. Like You didn't see anything sticking up. Completely under. He comes out. His waders are filled to the top and uh, didn't have his waiter belt on, and luckily his iPhone 5 somehow completely stayed dried in his pocket. It was a scary one, but it was pretty hilarious. We laughed at it all day. And while I'm thinking about that, that takes me back to back when Tom first worked at Orvis in the winter of fall of 99. It was probably November, because back then I was an environmental engineer. And if you ever go to the dollar rent-a-car at Dulles Airport, I supervised that parking lot. I was an engineer that did that stuff with a background in macrobiology. Don't ask me how it happened, but I supervised a parking lot. And the great thing was every day I had access to the car wash at Dollar Rent-A-Car. So my 91 Accord hatchback was like spit shined every day. And for some reason, I was like, dude, I don't want to drive up to Big Honey Creek. So Tom's like, my mom will drive us. So Maria's driving us in their little car and she's smoking her Virginia Slims and I'm sleeping on the whole way up and she's just going to sit in the car and read, which is what she'd always done with Tom. Tom didn't get a license till he was like 20 years old. And Tom and I are fishing that big hole. If you fish big hunting Creek, it's that first big hole where the pipe comes out and it's a huge, I mean like 20 foot round pool and we're throwing streamers in there. And I'll you know they always say when the fish comes up to rise, you say like, Thank you, Mary, or you, there's some kind of saying you say before you set the hook. And I throw the streamer in, and it's before like I'd really gotten into tying streamers, and it wasn't a good one, wasn't weighted properly, and it's just kind of hanging there, and you see this mouth, this white mouth just come up from the deep and just try to just chomp it. And I was like, oh, big trout. And I'd still barely ever caught trout at that time. So I set the hook and missed it. But Tom cast his fly on the other side of the hole and i'm like dude just put your rod down and uh and walk around the hole and just pop it off the other side because the hole opens up where it comes out of the tube and then it trickles off the tail of the hole it's like ankle deep he's like no no dude i can walk i can walk across the hole so he takes a step in and takes maybe two steps he's like see it's not too deep one more step and all there is is a floating cowboy hat it's probably like 38 degrees up in the mountains that day. You know, there's like frost on the windows when we left. So it's colder up there. And Tom pops up like dog paddling, screaming expletives. He comes up, pulls down his waders, covered in mayfly larva. And the one thing that pissed him off the most was that his cigarettes got wet. Not that like he was soaking wet and didn't know what to do. It was that his smokes got wet. So we go back to his car. And his mom has a change of clothes, which is an Orvis women's sweater with black lab puppies on it with like a heart around them and something else. So Tom puts on like his mom's sweatpants and this. I, I wish I had a picture of this. It was one of the funniest scenes, seeing a dude wearing 
that sweater. You know, you might see that in DC. Some hipster might doing it because it's so cool to be like wearing nerdy clothes. But Tom got his smoke sweat, got covered in mayflies, and then he also had that sweatshirt on. That's a funny one. And that see, this just brings up another story. So in high school, I went on a trip to South America, and we were in the Amazon for a week. And you know, this is before I was a hardcore fly fisherman. So this guy, Steve Sklaru, he runs VAflyfish.com. I can thank him for getting me seriously into entomology and seriously into fly fishing. This was the tail end of the trip. So I'd been fishing with Steve's fly rod most of the time, and I discovered this fly called a Clouser Minnow. This was the summer of 93. And we're on the Amazon, or tributary. It's the Rio Aguarico, out in the middle of who knows where in Ecuador. We get down there. And we go to Steve and I go down the docks to go fish, and the dude, the the like guys from the Amazon start laughing at us with this like size six hook and this like eight and a half foot rod. They're like, oh, the guy pulls out a hook that must have been like six aught with a piece of like rope tied to the eye and like a chunk of pork skin, and he laughs and says, "These, these catch fish." We're like, dude, what the hell kind of fish is in the river that you need a hook that honestly looks like a pencil is bent in the shape of a hook? It was as thick as a pencil, but it had rained so much while we were there that the river rose 15 feet. It washed the docks out. It was completely flooded, and we never got a fly fish down there. We went a line the first day and never caught anything, so I technically can say I did fish the Amazon, but we got skunked. One day when the flood started going down, we took out these dugout canoes through the flooded rainforest. And it's the canoe is maybe as wide as my butt. So um, we're talking pretty small. And it's like six feet long. And it's me and this girl, Trissy. And we're going through the rainforest. And as we're brushing up against these like banana palms, there are lime green tarantulas just falling into the boat. Um, put your hands together like, like you're making a ball. And, like, that's how big they were. These things were, I mean, palm-sized lime green tarantulas. And Trissy didn't, I mean, she was brushing up against trees. She had, like, walking sticks and Katie did the size of hamsters, like, on her Gore-Tex jacket and had no idea they were on there at the time. It was, so I would, like, brush them off like Indiana Jones when uh, Doc Ock from Spider-Man 2 was, like, taking the, the whip and, like, pushing him off his back. But that brings me uh, okay. So then we get back to the big dugout canoe, which so we took this like fifty foot dugout canoe with the little canoes and trail, and then would go up these creeks. So we're in the big canoe, and you know, guys named David always travel in pairs. And I got to finish this up. I got to get to the beer tie rira tonight. So they're on the edge of the canoe. They're like, "How oh, we're going to jump off in the water?" The Daves were fearless. One lives in Hawaii. One's in the army now, and they go and they're on the edge of this fifty foot dugout canoe. And they're swinging their arms back and forth. They're like, and a one, and a two, and a three. And they go to jump in this chocolate milk cold water. And they land in like maybe knee-deep water. And we're all like laughing hysterically. We're like, ha-ha, well, it wasn't deep at all. They each take a step out and disappear. Just like Kyle did. Just like Tom did. It's three times I've seen somebody take a step out into water and completely disappear. So maybe if you're fishing with me, you might want to watch where you're stepping. Now back to the part about 
fishing with Clousers. So Steve shows up on the boat, and I never met the guy before this. He was already at Virginia Tech. I was going to be a junior in high school in 93. So he brings a four-piece Orvis, and I don't even think I'd heard of Orvis. Maybe I'd seen like the name and catalog or Fly Fisherman, but I don't even think I read Fly Fisherman back then. And he's got this book called Sex, Death, and Fly Fishing. And they're talking about midges and at night, you know, over beers. Steve's like drawing flies for me, like an elk hair caddis, a midge. I don't know what Guy Rock is talking about. But Steve's got this fly rod with these clouds or minnows. And we're catching, there's, I mean, the water's crystal clear where we were in the Galapagos. And we're catching like puffer fish. And they come up and they're small like a potato, but then they puff up the size of a football. And you can throw them like a football, like 30 feet, and they land on the water, deflate, and sink. And I mean, I don't know what else we were catching, but it was like left and right, just and like two bites from these puffer fish, and they break the clouser in half. And the, honestly, the way to chum up these fish is when you would make your big duty in the bathroom, you'd pull the lever, and it would just flush it right into the water. So you would run down there, and you'd have to yell flush because people were jumping off the top of the boat swimming. So you'd have someone flush to chum the fish up for you, and then you'd catch them. But then again, as a joke, when someone was jumping off the third story of the boat, in midair, you'd yell, flushing, and they think they're going to be landing in a whole pile of, of big big duty in the water, and they'd kind of belly flop in because they were so scared. Um, that's it for now. I got to go to the Tidal Potomac Rotters Beer Fly. Maybe I'll do one more story in this, and that'll end part two of Fishing Stories. All righty. I'm back from the Tidal Potomac fly rotters tpfr.org beer tie which is where we get together once a month and i or miles who works at the orvis store in arlington virginia will teach a table of rotating novices throughout the night while the rest of the room just sits around and ties flies there's usually a raffle giveaways this time some guy brought probably about 50 to 60 individual pheasant tails for free and we all uh, walked home with a handful of pheasant tails. All right, so let me continue with the story. Let's go back to Steve Sclaru and the trip to South America. So Steve had the Gyrak book, and he sort of got me into serious bug collecting and into fly fishing. And we get back, and it's the summer of 93. Zuropa had just come out. And Steve organized a little trip up to the, what we call the Staircase by Harper's Ferry. It's a drop in elevation right above the town of Harper's Ferry on the Shenandoah River, which is loaded with smallmouth. So I went over to the Orvis store, which he informed me about at Tyson's Corner, and I got about a dozen flies. And first off, you know, I was using my parents' credit card. I flipped out that I got a dozen flies and walked out of there, paying about 30 bucks for them. I still have a couple today. Uh, I can tell you that I got some Zonkers, some Sneaky Pete's. Maybe a black woolly bugger. And I got another little um, weird popping bug that had googly eyes painted on it. It was made out of mylar for, over the head. And that was pretty awesome. Uh, Steve slowly got me less of a, a spin fisherman after that summer. And then I went to Angler's Lie. In August, not August, spring break, April of 1994, and got my first fly tying vice from Grizzly. And if you know Urban Angler now, Grizzly's still there. He's sort of a, 
a legend, a DC personality in fly fishing. And I went to college. You know, I'd been fly fishing and spin fishing on and off. You know, I would always take my ultralight with me and I'd always take uh, friends out fly fishing. I had two Cortland rods at the time. And it really wasn't until college ended that everything changed. And I know you have that one life-changing fly fishing moment when fly fishing became your thing. That's what you do. Unless you're, I mean, I, I honestly, it's my family and fly fishing. Everything else revolves around fly fishing for me, which you obviously have figured out by now. I went to school on the Rappahannock River, Fredericksburg, which had great shad run. And I'd fished for shad a couple times. And in the summers, on my day off was Tuesday when I worked at a restaurant. And I had gone out and caught some schoolies in like the six to seven inch range on my spinning rod. But it wasn't until that last day of finals, it was May 4th, 1999, I'd finished my botany final. And college at that moment was done. There was nothing between that final. There was a graduation ball and then there was graduation. That was it. So I had like six days off and I drove straight from the science department building to sports authority and I picked up a fishing license and went home, changed, put on my fishing hat, grabbed uh, flies and I had been to Puerto Rico so I had some half and halves and some clouser minnows that I'd tied up. Went down to the Rappahannock at the Route 1 Bridge. And that's the day that my life changed. You know, you can say uh, two things, uh, three things. Uh, marrying my wife, the birth of my daughter, and this day, probably the three most important days of my life. And I wade out to the river. It's a sandy flat with punctuations of rocks. And there's a guy fishing on the shoreline, and he's like, hey, man, you fly fish, you ain't going to catch it. Ain't no, no fish out here. He was either fishing, and I don't know why he would tell me there are no fish out there if he was fishing, or he was just drinking beer. You get a lot of, uh, they're called Frednecks down there, just good old boys that'll sit in the river and lawn chairs and drink beer all day or hang out on the shore. It is a tidal floodplain, so there's a lot of sand, and there's a big beach. You get a bikini hatch down there every now and then. So I wade out, and... Some stripers are chasing bait fish. And I see that about 30 feet. I'm facing downstream, which would be 12 o'clock. And this is a little bit about 2 o'clock. And I haul off some line, and I throw a cast right into that. And I strip once, and I hook a striper. And I'm on my 8-weight, which I had purchased for the trip to Africa. And that fish is pulling line off. It, to that point, had been the largest, the strongest fish I'd ever personally caught on a fly rod. It was adrenaline rushing through my my veins. I was completely ecstatic. You may not hear it from my voice right now. I'm a little tired, but hooking that one straight bass and pulling it in and seeing it was maybe, I mean, I'll tell you, 16, 17 inches was nothing huge, but it was the strength and the beauty of that silver and white with the black stripes and that big eye and the big mouth. And you know, if I was going to get a tattoo, I'd probably have to get a striper. It was a life-changing moment for me. And I honestly, that day changed everything. I have not 
fished a spinning rod since May 4th, 99. They're all in my parents' garage. So I think my brother's got the tackle box with the spinning gear at his house. I continued catching stripers that day, and for the next four to five days, I was out every single day catching stripers up to 20-something inches. And the water was crystal clear, and you could see everything in the water. You could see the lampreys, four-foot-long lampreys. You could see the eels. You could see the guard. You could see the catfish, the largemouth, the smallmouth. You could see the herring and the white perch. Everything was swimming by me, and it was just this great weight off my shoulders that I was done with college. And I spent the majority of college, I was a geek in the library every day. I studied. I maybe went to one keg party in college. It was easier for us to drink liquor than to get keg beer. And I want to say that was probably the night before graduation I went to that keg party. I honestly don't remember going to any, any, any keg parties in college. I was a geek. I studied science. But it was that four or five days where I had nothing to do but fish that falling tide. And then I'd go home for lunch, hit the head, and then I'd come back for the incoming tide sunrise to sundown and it was fantastic i joked with my girlfriend that i was going to wear a pair of waders with a tuxedo underneath them on my way to the graduation ball it was a tuxedo i'd bought for 19 dollars at a thrift store in uh, downtown fredericksburg and the great thing was i was so hungover after graduation ball i just left it on the floor i didn't have to bring it back to the, the rental place like everyone else so what I want to tell you with these stories is it all all comes down to that one day of that one striped bass, and I can close my eyes and I can smell the sort of salty, brackish water, the sun beating down on me, the green of the trees, and just knowing that life was completely different now. I was done with college. I had adulthood to figure out, get a job. And the job I got after college was working in a fly shop. And that all comes down to breaking my rod and taking it to an Orvis store and taking the help wanted sign in with me. And that is where things took off. And uh, I will end part two of fly fishing stories with my life changing event, which was catching my first striped bass on a fly rod. Next up, we're going to do Mosse Creek. Thanks for downloading. This has been produced by Freestone Media, a Jason Reef production. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.
join Waypoint TV and LG channels in celebrating Great Outdoors Month. Presented by Battery Tender. Tune in every Tuesday and Sunday in June starting at 7 p.m. Eastern. Channel 109 on your LG Smart TV. You can also watch Waypoint TV at lgchannels.com. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more. Join Waypoint TV's Great Outdoors Month celebration presented by Battery Tender every Tuesday and Sunday in June from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Enjoy fishing and hunting content that will inspire you to get outside, but also to take action in preserving the land and water that allows us to do what we love most. Tuesdays and Sundays in June starting at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment 